So I'll read the passage in a few moments, but just uh, start off the sermon by bringing down the mood slightly. I'm sorry. Um, The truth is, we can thank God for answered prayer, but often it seems to be a while before our prayers are answered. And often we might think of more quickly the many areas that God hasn't broken in and brought transformation. So yes, we thank God, but we also have this reality of unanswered prayer and the need for persistent prayer. So we're going to think a bit about that today in this passage. But what I thought I'd do is start with three stories that I'm still praying uh, for God to bring about transformation. Um, A friend of mine When I was about 12, I met him uh, when I used to live in Stevenage in North Hertfordshire, a chap called Colin. We used to play at the park together. We'd hang out. We'd play tennis in the summer. Um, He'd come along to youth group, and he gradually became familiar with the story of who Jesus was, and he gave his life to Jesus. And it was a joy, and he came to church, and he was an active part of the church. He got baptized. And then about two years later, his life changed. And he lost interest, and he stopped coming to church, and he's not been back since. Or I could tell you about my friend James, who, when I was running the youth work in my previous church, he was full of energy and enthusiasm. He'd come to everything and be the soul of the life of the party, unlike my other friend, Colin, who really was quite a quiet chap. This was a vibrant, kind of party-like guy. And he came to faith, and he got baptized, and he was a whirlwind of energy and enthusiasm for the Lord. He went to Peru and did mission work. He returned, but not many months later, and he stopped coming to church. His partying life was too big a draw. His personality led him to all sorts of other aspects of living, and he now denies Jesus as a part of his life. Or I could tell you about Nathan, my friend at university, who joined the football team, uh, was looking for friends, and found friends in the football team. He then met with me regularly and talked about uh, meaning of life and Jesus. And he came to faith, and he joined the Christian Union. And it was a thrill. But he he had a brother that was seriously ill. And that was a huge barrier for him. And understanding why God would allow his brother to suffer to the extent that he did. And so he he refused to get baptized. He ended up turning away from the Christian union and his faith in Jesus. And I don't know where he's at now. And I imagine, like me, you have people in your life that you know, maybe family members, children or grandchildren, sisters or brothers, mothers and fathers. Maybe you have friends Maybe you have ex-partners, maybe you have partners. Whatever the situation may be, we all, I imagine, have people that at one time showed interest or faith in Jesus, but now no longer do. And it's hard, and it's sad, and we pray, and we trust, but often our prayers seem unheard and unanswered. You see, this touches, this impacts all of us in this room. Because maybe even if you're sat here today, you're not sure whether you follow Jesus. Maybe you're sat here today thinking, I remember a significant chunk of my life when I didn't follow Jesus, when I had turned away, but by his grace I've been brought back. Maybe this is really real for you. It's hard, it's tough, it impacts all of us. And in this passage today, we're going to come across a situation, a person, Judas, who had been with Jesus for three years, was a part of 
the disciples, one of the 12, and yet he abandons his faith. Evil works through him. See, we need to trust God's plan. But it's hard to when we hear stories of people not living out their faith to the end, not making it the whole way home, giving up on the race. So the questions that I want us to grapple with today are are quite sensitive, they're quite hard, but we find them in Scripture, and I believe there's good news for us today. Yes, we will talk about how Judas abandoned his faith, but we'll also talk about abounding grace and that we can leave here this morning with hope. But how do we cope? How do we react? How do we respond when people fall away from following Jesus? When people reject him and don't want to believe? When they show disinterest? And it's it's painful, it hurts. So what does Luke 22 say? Let's read it together and we'll explore what these verses mean and then we'll explore what it looks like for us to follow Jesus the whole way home. So in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, from verse 1 down to 6, we read this. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray them betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. It was festival season. The Passover was approaching, the feast of unleavened bread. From the 15th to the 21st of the month of Nisan, it probably March, April time in our calendar year, this key moment of gathering, of celebrating. If you're a Jew, you got excited about this. It was like Christmas or Easter for us, this exciting festival where you gathered with family, with loved ones, you celebrated, you rejoiced, you remembered the Exodus story, the way that God was your deliverer, the way that a lamb was slain so that you could have blood spread across the doorpost and the angel of the Lord pass over um, and instead you would be saved. You'd be delivered, you'd be saved from from Egypt and taken to be a part of God's people. This was the season, this was the festival that the people were remembering. And this was a politically turbulent time. If you were a Roman, a soldier, then you got a bit worried by this season. Because if you're a Jew, you're excited, it was fun, it was celebratory. But if you were a Roman uh, and had responsibility, your fear would be that there'd be another Messiah wannabe. There'd be an uprising, there could be this turbulent time. And so you had to be on it. You had to be prepared. And especially this year, because this guy called Jesus of Nazareth, was pulling not just a small crowd, but masses of people. He was captivating people with his teaching. He was performing miracles. He was the talk of the nation and the city this Passover. So the religious leaders that didn't agree with Jesus' teaching and were skeptical about his, his miracles and felt that he was blaspheming and claiming to be someone they didn't think he was, decided to put things right. But they knew that they couldn't just arrest him in the temple 
or in a public space in the daytime because the crowds were supportive of him. And it would cause a disturbance that would not go down well with the Roman authorities. So they had to come up with a plan. They had to set a trap. They had to figure out how to get this Jesus. So they were driven by fear. They wanted to control the situation. And they had to get this right. They felt threatened by this Jesus of Nazareth. And Luke makes the readers uh, understand that, that this time was close to the to the death of Jesus. All through his gospel, he's been preparing the reader or the hearer for this Jesus who was set upon Jerusalem, who was moving towards Jerusalem for a set purpose. In fact, Jesus had predicted that he'd be rejected, that he'd be delivered over to the authorities, that he would suffer and die, but on the third day, rise. And this is where we're at. And we're introduced to Judas again here. At this moment, one of the 12 who... Who, who decides to act in this betraying sense, subversive, underhand, stabs Jesus in the back, who goes to these authorities and says, I've got a way. I know, I've got, an, I've got a way into giving you Jesus. And they hatch a plan. Betrayal. It's horrible. Have you been betrayed by someone? Have you been not just let down, but kind of stabbed in the back? It's a horrible feeling. And yet, I imagine it's a small experience in contrast to what Jesus encountered. If if you're called a Judas, it's not a nice thing, is it? It's a pretty horrible thing to be called. It means you have betrayed someone. And it actually captures quite a few of the films that we watch and media that we engage with. And often, the best stories are told when there is a a Judas-like figure in them because it pulls our emotions in. And then we look for a moment of redemption and restoration and celebrate that. So I thought I would just give you guys a little test to see how on it you are with betrayal moments in film. So I'm going to stick up a film. Who can tell me the character or the moment of betrayal in this film, The Dark Knight? Does anyone know? Come on, guys. Bit of participation. Go on, Richard. Start us off. Harvey Dent, known as Two-Face. If you haven't seen it, I won't explain how he does it. He is the figure that betrays um, Batman, essentially. Okay, next film. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. I reckon you have. Most people have probably watched Harry Potter. Um, and Oh, no, go back to Harry Potter. Um, or, or is it Matrix next? It's slow. The Matrix is up. What character in The Matrix? Okay, here we're going to go. Either Matrix or Harry Potter, Goblet of Fire. Who can tell me who's, who's the betraying figure in this? Professor Moody. Professor Moody, well done. Professor Moody, if you haven't watched it, you have to watch it and figure out the moment. And the Matrix, going back a bit, 20 years ago now. The guy, who can remember his name? Cypher, thank you, Lewis. Cypher, he's eating steak. He's enjoying the taste of steak in his mouth. And at that point, that is the Judas moment in the film where he gives away the location of where Neo, the one, is based. Now, I can't claim to have seen these films. So if you you could come out with any response and tell me. But there's a significant moment, apparently, in Reservoir Dogs. Anyone know it? No, we've got no Reservoir Dogs uh, watchers here. That's fine. Um, And the next film came up as the main top film with, I haven't seen this one either, The Godfather Part Two, Gangster Life. 
a significant moment of betrayal. If you look at top betrayal moments, these are the ones that will come up. And maybe you've got your own story. Maybe there's a moment we can move away from that image. <laughs> uh, where where we, we experience someone going against us, letting us down. And this moment in the Passion Week, in the narrative of the Gospels, is meant to hit us hard. And so as I've begun and opened up some of the environment of this, we need to reflect maybe on our own situation or, or friends or others where we have felt let down. But Judas's betrayal of Jesus is unique. Whatever our experience, whatever film experience we might have in our mind, Judas is experienced. That will, will not be repeated. Judas's betrayal of Jesus led to him being arrested and then crucified. This was a world-changing event. So as much as we know people that have fallen away, as much as people reject Jesus, they're not like Judas in leading to the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're not like Judas. This is different. And yet Judas is a character that we will reflect on a bit together now. He was one of the 12. He's listed with the 12, but normally the last in the name of lists uh, throughout the Gospels often with uh, the one who betrayed Jesus in brackets at the end. He, he was chosen and appointed by Jesus after prayer and fasting. He lived with and journeyed with Jesus for three years. He had a role. He wasn't just one of the 12. He was the treasurer. He was the money bag keeper. He had an important position. He sat close to Jesus at the Last Supper, possibly right next to him because he was able to be close enough to dip the bread into the same cup as Jesus in the Last Supper account. He was close, he was important, he was trusted, he was a part of the team. Why did he do it? One earth was going through his mind. See, did he even really believe that Jesus was the Messiah in the first place? Uh, and there's different schools of thoughts with this. Maybe you think he never had genuine faith. Maybe you think he did and then it all went wrong. That's a whole different topic of conversation that we won't go into right now. But what we do know is that Jesus made a commitment to follow Jesus for a period of time before the betrayal. He had an amazing opportunity. He had the best discipler, miracle worker, in the business, the best environment for spiritual growth, being with Jesus day by day, week by week for three years. This is the best university program for being a missionary ever, okay? He had it. He was sent out. He healed. He may, be, may well dealt with the occult in his context and, uh, and cast out demons, we don't know all the things he may have done. He definitely preached the gospel. He saw people's lives impacted and transformed. I've got a quote here. I can't remember. It may be on the screen. Yeah. So listen to this. With Judas's eyes, he saw the clearest evidence. With his ears, he heard the finest teaching. With his feet, he followed the greatest example. And yet this man still betrayed Jesus. Colin Smith, a writer and um, leader at Gospel Coalition. And yet, did he have genuine faith? We don't know for sure. Possibly not. Because his actions display that he didn't really get transformed at a heart level by who Jesus really was. 
we have a few indications about that that we'll look at now. But when people abandon the faith, when they fall away, do you, like me, think, what did I do wrong with Colin? What did I do wrong with James? What did I do wrong with Nathan? What more could I have done? Did they fall away because of my discipleship, because of my friendship? Did I not represent Jesus well enough to them? Should I have immersed them in a different context? What was lacking in my attempt to see those friends follow Jesus? You see, you can have the best possible environment for faith, the greatest teaching, the godliest examples, but it doesn't change the human heart. The Spirit of God does that, and him alone. In John chapter 6, and we'll have this on the screen, 63 to 70, Jesus speaks about this, and I'm going to read this passage to illuminate something of what we're thinking about. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life, Jesus says. Yet there are some of you, he says to the crowds and the disciples, who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You see, we have an example of people falling away, even in the environment of Jesus' teaching. You do not want to leave too. From this time, many left. Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through, though one of the twelve would later betray him. Hard teaching. People fall away. One of you is a devil. What a statement that only Jesus could speak. You see, we come to, the, to Jesus only as the Father enables us, as the Spirit gives life. See, G Judas made lots of wrong choices along the way. It wasn't just at the Last Supper when he decided to disappear off and approach the religious leaders and ask for some money in exchange for Jesus' location. It was more than that. In John's Gospel, again, chapter 6, we come across the anointing of Jesus by Mary. And at that point, Judas questions Mary's perfume being poured across Jesus' feet as an act of worship. And he says, surely this money should have gone to the poor. Why on earth is Mary doing this to you, Jesus? And Jesus rebukes and corrects him. And it says in that passage that Judas used to help himself to the money bag. He used to dip his hand in and put it in his pocket. You see, this pattern of behavior, this sinful living, wasn't just in one moment. It was a, a pattern of behavior probably throughout the three years that Judas was with Jesus. But Judas wasn't the only disciple that had got things wrong. Think of Peter and his outspokenness and anger at times. Think of John and James and their de de desire for being in the best position and call calling down thunder and lightning on the Samaritans. Think of Thomas and his doubt and questioning. 
None of them were perfect. They all abandoned Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet Satan seemed to target Judas. He seemed to focus in on him because he was seeking to serve two masters, not one. His sinful desires and passion led to the betrayal, led to Satan influencing him and betraying. He opened the doorway to sin through these ulterior motives that he had, this obsession with money of his own self-interest. He was deceitful. He was uh, a thief, as we read in the Gospels. He was not living by taking up his cross daily and following Jesus, as Jesus called his disciples to. He opened the door to sin in his life, and Satan took full advantage. In our house, if you've been, you might well have noticed that we keep lots of doors shut. We like to contain the mess, the chaos within certain rooms. Now, you add a one-year-old puppy, dog, that is quite large and energetic and boisterous to the mix. There's even more reasons for us to keep certain doors closed. So we contain Rhea, my lovely dog, into certain spaces. And when people arrive, we kind of get them into the lobby area. The lobby area, it sounds very grand, our foyer, our entrance hall. Uh, as people arrive, and then we go, okay, you ready? Right, doors are shut, ready. Shoes are in a safe zone. Okay, in you come, get ready. The door swings open into the lounge. People are beckoned in, and the door is shut, so Rhea can't escape out. Grab shoes, we in the floor, jump all over our guests, and cause havoc. Um, if you've experienced something of that, I publicly apologize. Maybe you've loved it, and that's why you keep coming back. Great. Um, and so we contain Rhea to certain rooms of the house and definitely downstairs. If we open doorways and she gets out, who knows the mess, the chaos, the disaster that will follow. The mess, the chaos, the disaster that follows when we open doors up to temptations that we know we are vulnerable to, that we know will lead us along the wrong path, that we, like Judas, find ourselves putting our hand into a money bag and keeping it for ourselves. Wow. Maybe we're more like Judas than we think. Maybe we're more influenced by our sinful desires than we sometimes realize. The wrong crowd, the late night screen time, the extra drink, the me time, of indulgence at the expense of another meal out, another holiday, another self-centered decision. What area do you need to shut the doors in in your life? See, we've got to learn from Judas. And at the opportune time, the devil returns to the scene. At the start of Luke's gospel in chapter 4, the devil said, looked for a new opportune time, having failed at tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And here we see the devil arriving on the scene in Luke's gospel and entering Judas, focusing on the one he could corrupt fully and move away. Woe to Judas for his betrayal. No excuse, there's no justification. He is accountable. He opened himself up to the influence of the evil one. And so we have Satan's plan of destruction against God's plan of redemption. It looks like Satan's going to win. How is it going to work out? What is going to happen? And so we've thought about abandoning faith and how Judas did that and maybe how people in our lives have done that. 
Where is the hope? Where is the good news in the story here? Well, for Judas, there's not a lot of good news. He feels remorse, but he doesn't repent. He ends up following his pathway and then hanging himself. It's a sad story of betrayal, destruction, and death. But there's also a story of abounding grace that we must remember. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Maybe you're sat here thinking, I was away from the Lord for not just weeks and months, but years, and I'm back here and praise God for his abounding grace in spite of my abandoning faith. But how do we follow Jesus the whole way home? What hope do we have for our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our family, our neighbours, our colleagues that either reject Jesus or have fallen away and not returned? How do we follow him the whole way home? Well, we remember his grace today and tomorrow. One day at a time, we remember it. But because of his grace, it means that we can open up the areas where the doors are open and we step towards temptation and we're tempted to sin. And so we're aware that like my friend Colin with his unbelieving girlfriend and his Sunday job, it led him down a path that took him away from church. Or we remember my friend James and partying and seeking money to bring his answers to life that led him away from his saviour. Or Nathan and his suffering brother and the pain of that question of suffering that led him away from a God that he didn't want to believe in. Whoever it is, whatever the situations, we remember grace. And so we pray for new jobs, and 20 years later, people get new jobs. And we remember that as we persist in prayer, God's grace is at work in people's lives. But it means that we must guard our hearts. So individually, how are we shutting the doors where the temptations are the other side of the doors? How are we not falling into the pattern of the behavior that Judas did, which was to dip his hand in the money bag, and then by the time it came to the Last Supper, he thought, I'll have more than there is in the money bag. I'll have those 30 pieces of silver. And that is only by intentional discipleship. This is what James 1, 13 to 15 says. It'll come up on the screen says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. (coughs) The danger of temptation is all around us. How are you tempted at the moment? What areas of your life do you need to confess to a friend and say, help me, I need to be accountable in this area. I need to shut the door, but I can't shut it on my own. I need your help. And maybe that's talking to a friend about an area that you're struggling in. Maybe that's being in life group where you're regularly doing Bible study and praying with other Christians in the middle of the week, not just on a Sunday, so that you're supported. Maybe it's having a mentor so that you can be supported and share your struggles and receive wise guidance and led down so that you make it the whole way home. Guarding our hearts. And this is the wonder of of lives that are guarded. In James 5, just a few chapters on in the New Testament, James 5, 19 to 20, it says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth 
That's what we've been thinking about, people wandering from the truth. And someone should bring that person back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Grace for those that have wandered. Salvation, life covering from a multitude of pain and hurt and sin and brokenness. That looks like church community to me. A community of grace, guarding our hearts, looking out for one another, together seeking Jesus. That's community. That's looking beyond ourselves. That is the vision for this year. How do we look beyond ourselves to the community around us? It means getting alongside one another, loving one another, confessing to one another, forgiving one another, being gracious to one another. Abandoning faith could happen to any of us. But we remember God's abounding grace today and tomorrow. So how should we respond when people do abandon their faith or reject Jesus? Well, we have to offer compassion and grace. Don't forget that Jesus appointed Judas, and for three years he knew, and yet he offered him compassion and grace. He loved him. He was a part of the community. He even ate a meal with him before that moment of betrayal. And that is the character of our God. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the God that we follow. This is the, the, the word became flesh. Jesus, compassion, and grace. And so to those that we know that are in our families, that are in our friendship groups, that have fallen away from faith, that have abandoned Jesus, we offer compassion and grace. We don't stop because Jesus doesn't give up on us. And we have received his grace, so we offer it to those that are closest to us. And we also trust in his promises and purposes knowing that in his timing, he brings people back to himself. And we will have stories where people come back to faith. We have them in this room. I know, I look around and I can see stories and testimonies before me of people who fell away and have returned. And so abounding grace wins. And that brings us back to the the, the service start, prayer. We persist in prayer. 20 years and people find a job. Sometimes it's a few days and people experience healing, but many don't experience healing. Many don't come to faith when we pray immediately, but we persist in prayer. I'll finish with a story. It's fairly well known. You may have heard it, but it's an appropriate note to finish with. An evangelist and preacher, D.L. Moody, um, was passionate for his unsaved friends. And he had a prayer list for most of his life, a hundred people on his prayer list that were not believers or had fallen away from faith. And he prayed through that list each day. He died in the late 1800s. And on the day of his death, 96 of his prayer list had come back to Jesus. And the four that remained were at his funeral. And guess what happened through the preaching at his funeral? Those four came to Jesus. Praise God.
Lord Jesus, give us faith. We need your Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives life. Lord God, our hearts are hard and wicked and sinful, but grace abounds. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.